Hello and welcome to the May episode of the Paediatric Research Podcast. I'm Kerry Smith and this month we're investigating what happens when babies begin to breathe on their own. Being born is a strenuous process, not least because babies must rid their lungs of the fluid that's been there for months and fill them with air. The timing of this, and also the timing of shutting off the supply of air from the mother through clamping the umbilical cord, is the subject of a review in paediatric research by Stuart Hooper from Monash University in Melbourne and his colleagues. I called Stuart to learn more and started by asking him to describe what happens in the cardiovascular system when a baby is born. Before you're born, you, your lungs are filled with liquid or the, the airways are filled with liquid and there's a number of mechanisms that you have that take place during the process of birth and one of them is just simply where the, the, um, the baby is forced into a, um, into a dorsoventral flexion, if you know what I mean. So it sort of is forced into a fetal position and um, that sort of forces fluid out through the nose and mouth and many clinicians see that with gush, gushes of fluid coming from the nose and mouth uh, as the baby's head is delivered. Um, but then, but once you are born, you are born with liquid still in your lungs and, and the main way the baby gets rid of it is essentially inhaling and so it takes a big breath and that creates a pressure gradient between the airways and the tissue and, and the, the water moves out of the airways into the tissue um, as a result of that pressure gradient. So some of it, as you were saying, as the baby is starting to be delivered, comes out through the nose and the mouth, but actually the rest of it kind of just disappears into the, into the tissue, into the body. That's exactly right. And it, it goes into the tissue, but it goes into the tissue very, very quickly. And so, um, as it, you know, in, in most babies, the, the lungs will clear in three to five breaths. It's the babies that um, have trouble clearing their, their airways that we're sort of most interested in. And those um, babies um, may be born preterm or they may have um, some other, they might be apneic for some reason. Like, for instance, they might be slightly hypoxic when they're born, which would inhibit their breathing effort. Now, before babies are born, they get their air, don't they, through the umbilical cord from their mum. And then this obviously changes once they're out in the world and doing it for themselves. Then what happens to the umbilical cord afterwards? Uh, you've written about this in your article, the sort of timing of when that, that cord is clamped. Well, that's, that's very, very fascinating question. And, and you're right, gas exchange occurs across the placenta and it gets all its nutrients from the placenta as a fetus. The, um, the baby's, um, much of its cardiac output actually flows through the placenta. And therefore, as soon as you, the baby's born and the cord is clamped, suddenly all that flow is diverted. Not only is it diverted, but also the venous return, so the blood flow that's coming back from the placenta is lost. And so as a result of that, what happens is cardiac output is reduced. And what have we learnt recently about this process and how we might think about the way that it happens and, and the way that we should interact with it? Well, I think what we've learnt most just recently is how to connect the dots. We've known that um, for more 30-odd years, more, that um, a large part of the cardiac output goes to the placenta and therefore a large part of the venous return has to come from the placenta in the fetus. And we also know that um, at birth that's lost. We also know that at birth um, 
with aeration of the lungs, there's a big increase in pulmonary blood flow. What we didn't really um, do was to connect the, 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 the relationship between the two, and that's what we've just done. What we've found is that the cardiac output after cord clamping will stay re reduced until the lungs aerate and pulmonary blood flow increases. And the reason for this is, is really quite simple, and that is that venous return is restricted as soon as you clamp the umbilical cord, and venous return is only restored to the heart once you aerate the lungs and increase pulmonary blood flow. And it's only at that point that cardiac output goes up. So really then, it, just, it was just a matter of logic, was, well, why don't you initiate aeration of the lung before you clamp the umbilical cord? And that, in essence, is what most infants do because they come out crying and breathing and are very vigorous. It's quite miraculous, isn't it, this massive change in physiology that's I mean, incomparable to anything that happens to us after this point in our lives. You're exactly right. It's a huge and it's the biggest challenge that um, we'll ever face in terms of our, the changing, rapid changing in our physiology. There's, there's nothing other and nothing else that compares to those sort of um, challenges that, the, that every, every single one of us actually went through. And uh, really, you know, 90 odd percent of us go through it with ease without making any fuss whatsoever. You mentioned 90 percent of babies get through fine. They start aerating their own lungs. Then the cord can be can be clamped. They're doing their own work. But what about perhaps this smaller proportion who don't have such an easy time doing that? I mean, does this does this new kind of look at the model of what happens? Does that help us uh, improve their chances, perhaps? I think it definitely does. I think this is an opportunity for no cost, just changing protocol to have quite a large impact on outcomes for a lot of these infants. We suspect, and the logic dictates, that um, the infants that will benefit most from uh, initiating breathing before um, cord clamping or even initiating ventilation if the infant isn't breathing, so this is assisted ventilation, could have a major benefit for these infants and in stabilising their circulation during this transitionary process. Because the, the, what you really need to avoid, in, in particularly in um, very preterm infants, is large swings in blood pressure and cardiac output. The potential here to cause an uh, increased pressure and flow-related um, intraventricular hemorrhage is, is, quite, is quite large. We shouldn't also forget to mention that um, there is um, the potential for, and this is where most of the focus has been um, in previous years about delayed cord clamping, is the potential for um, placental to fetal blood transfusion. And that also has major benefits for the infant. How does that relate exactly? The, there's lots of studies showing that um, if you delay and leave the cord alone, while the infant um, uh, is transitioning, then you'll get net blood uh, transfer from the placenta to the infant. In the fetus at any one time, around about 30% of the blood volume of the, the fetus is actually um, in the placenta. So, of course, as soon as you clamp the umbilical cord at birth, you're at risk of leaving behind that large volume of blood in the, um, in the placenta. Now... The, the only issue here is, is really understanding what 
um, determines the transfer of blood from the placenta to the fetus. And there are many factors that, that do this. Um, and in some infants, uh, if the infant, for instance, is taking deep inspiratory efforts uh, or taking big breaths, it's lying quietly and, uh, and is breathing, then it's more than likely that it'll have quite a large, significant blood transfusion from the, um, the placenta to the infant, which of course is good. Um, but if the infant is crying, struggling, grunting, holding its breath, um, which we'd call splinting, um, this increases thoracic pressure and abdominal pressure, and this actually uh, tends to force or stop blood flowing into the infant, and also uh, it potentially can force blood flow out of the infant back into the placenta. So the, depending upon what the infant's doing and what its physiology is, will determine what the blood transfer is. Just briefly, some processes like this, even though they're cheap to do or even free, they're easy to make the change, still there's a culture that suggests that it's difficult to make people do this on the ground. I mean, do you think that's going to be the case here or does it look pretty easy to you? I always hesitate to, to comment on practical issues with regard to, because I'm a scientist and, and I predominantly work on um, the knowledge side of things. From, from my perspective, I think this is more to do with convention and what people have always done. And the practicalities of it, I don't think, are insurmountable. And sh I think they sh it should become a, a standard of care. Timing of the cord clamping should be based on the infant's physiology. So if it's breathing, moving, clamp the cord. If it's not, don't. Do these insights suggest any further developments to you about how we might change aspects of the process of giving birth? And oh, There is one other thing too, and um, that's with um, the use of oxytocics. Oxytocin or oxytocin-like compounds are used or routinely given to women. Um, the current guidelines say, but there's much variation in this, say that that should be given on delivery of the anterior shoulder of the infant. Now, what they're, they're given um, to uh, reduce the risk of postpartum hemorrhage. But the problem is, and, and the latest evidence suggests, that um, giving oxytocin is going to um, reduce any benefit of delayed cord clamping because it causes the uterus con to constrict and greatly increases uh, the uh, resistance in the placenta, so it reduces the circulation. And uh, as a result of that, the extension of what we're, we've been talking about is that um, not only should umbilical cord clamping be delayed, but the administration of oxytocin should also be delayed until after the cord has been clamped. Stuart Hooper from Monash University. You can read his review at nature.com PR, where you'll also find lots more reviews and research and more episodes of this podcast. I'm Kerry Smith. Thanks for listening.